Welcome to Retirementals, a podcast that dives headfirst into the issues facing the financial sector at the intersection of investment, technology and financial advice. Hosted by Abraham Okasanya, you can expect raw honesty, critical analysis and energetic interviews. Here is your host, Abraham Okasanya. Hello and welcome to Retirementals. It's great to have you all on the show today. I am really excited about our guest today. Dr. Sarah Newcomb is the Director of Behavioral Science at Morningstar and the author of Loaded, Money, Psychology and How to Get Ahead Without Leaving Your Value Behind. Dr. Newcomb, welcome to Retirementals. Thank you. It's great to be here. Can I just start by saying, wow, I say that because I was planning to give personal finance book a miss this year. I go through a lot of them. And so this year I was decided I decided that I wasn't going to read any uh, personal finance book. And I picked up your book. And I could not put it down, you know, for somebody who had uh, a a degree, what we would call a first class degree in mathematics, you have a way with words, just incredibly powerful book. Well, thank you. It was a labor of love, for sure. And (laughs) I think of of the book as it's a collection of all of my aha moments over the course of about 10 years of studying money from many different angles, Um, but looking into the ways, the interplay between our minds and our money. And that means culture and the stories that we internalize and the messages and everything. I mean, money affects, it affects our hopes and dreams. It affects our uh, quality of life. And yet we uh, are often, so many of us are introduced to it as um, a necessary evil with corrupting Mm. force. And yeah, so it's no wonder that we all are a little bit mixed up uh, and, and complex when it comes to money. So then you start teaching financial concepts to people that whose brains are loaded down with Uh, baggage around money. And it's no wonder the concepts don't get just quickly absorbed and used because there's too much other stuff in the way. So let's, let's, let's unpack some of that. Um, And I want you to take us right back. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, got me hooked on your book is that you talked about your own upbringing and how that led to what you referred to as anti-wealth culture. Take us right back. Take us back to, you know, your growing up. What was that like for you and the journey that led you to uh, where you are today? Yeah, well, so I grew up in a lower income family. Both of my parents worked um, jobs, not really careers, you know, mm-hmm. so it wasn't, they weren't doing going out and fulfilling their life's purpose. They were putting food on the table for four kids. And um we never went wanting, uh, or well, let's put it this way. We never went without our basic needs met, but I was well aware as a young child of the things we didn't have that the people around me had. Um, because socially, socially, we are socioeconomic creatures from a young age because our economy affects us even when we're kids. Right. Kids judge each other for the stuff their parents are able to buy them. <laughs> it's, um, it's, you know, these things we start young, it's cultural. 
So I, this is, you know, not understanding at the time, hindsight helped me see a lot of this more clearly, but what was going on with me, I think was um, growing up in a, with a sense of lack, it affected how I felt my, what I felt my options were in life, uh, my career track options, um, you know, what, what we are exposed to we do it largely inherit. At some point as adults, we have to start to question the things that we internalized as kids. But the messages that I internalized as a kid were very, as you said, anti-wealth. And I think that there's a lot, a lot to be said here. Um, we know that inequality exists. Uh, we see it. Numbers are very clear on that. And that's a hard reality for people to understand. Um, it's easy for us as humans to take sides. So we, mm. some of us view the world in terms of haves and have nots. And my parents and a lot of the people in the culture that I grew up in um, were very much, um, would demonize the haves. Mm. I think whatever, whichever side you're on, we see this all through psychology. We, in order to, it's a defense mechanism in order to feel good about our, our in-group we then find fault with the other, other group, um, yeah. and it's a very common, it, it relieves psychological pain. It's very common. Our brains do it almost, or if not automatically, but if we want to be conscious decision makers who are making smart decisions, then we have to recognize when those things are, when these habits of mind are just lazy habits of mind. What I see, when I say an anti-wealth mindset, what I'm talking about is a stereotype, a cultural stereotype that a lot of people learn in order to, that glorifies poverty and at the same time demonizes wealth. And we, we see these, these stereotypes, these cultural characters all through our stories in, in movies and songs and they're everywhere. So, I mean, we have, um, Mr. Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, right, is the same character as Mr. Krabs in SpongeBob. You know, that's the same as King Midas. He's the cautionary tale of the miser who cares for money of a material wealth above uh, the wealth of the, you know, the human spirit. And, and those stories are great and they teach deep truths, but they also paint the wealthy in a caricature that is just as dangerous as any other caricature. And I think we have a we have a um, a narrative that runs through our culture of haves and have-nots, and we pit ourselves against one another when we think in that binary way. What money makes the presence of money in your life, the having lots of resources, means you have a whole lot more options, opportunity, freedom. When I wrote the book Loaded, the editor kept telling me I couldn't use the word class. I had to find some other way of talking about class without using the word class because it's such a hot button word that I thought, can you at least acknowledge the irony of the fact that this is a book about the psychology of money and you don't want me to use the word class? Can you understand how hard it is for us to talk about money and wealth inequality and income inequality and all the things about, you know, money represents our, our the opportunities we have to live a fulfilling human life and the opportunities are not equally dispersed. And so it's really, really easy to get mad at money 
but it's not money's fault. Money is this inanimate thing. Money is a social contract. Money is actually really efficient because we don't have to go and barter for exactly the thing we need from a person who needs exactly the thing we have. Like this, the idea is actually very functional, but we have made it so dysfunctional because that because we're humans, that's what we do. And I think that that is a powerful story. I can actually relate with a lot of these things that you said. One of the things, you know, that that just when I, as I picked up your book and I started reading is it made me go back to my own upbringing and the incredible amount of um, lack. I grew up in an environment with that, that there was not, not a lot of money. As a matter of fact, um, you know, most people in this country would de describe that as poverty, you know, but and, you know, this negative messaging messages that you talked about were, were, were wrapped, you know, they were all around me, you know, this, um, you know, money is the root of evil, which is a misquote of, of, of the Bible, right, of a verse of the Bible, you know, money says love of money, you know, but, you know, people say money is the root of evil, money makes the world go around, there, there's all this, so you talked in the book about all these subtle messages around us that in as much as we say money is the biggest taboo and people don't talk about it directly there are so much embedded in our everyday life um there's so much messaging about money and that finds its way into into us and how how we behave how we organize the world in our own minds you know our understanding of the world there are money messages woven all through it and so those messages if you leave them unexamined they're going to affect the way you handle your money so it's just like anything else as you grow into adulthood and you start to create the value system that you want to live by that needs to include some thought about how you want to handle your resources. Incredibly powerful stuff. So, so the, 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 the message I am taking from here is that, you know, there are two, there are extremes of these things, you know, and, and your book is essentially about how we develop a good, healthy relationship about money. And you, you talked about, you, you set out two strategies for how we can challenge our core beliefs about money. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about those strategies. Yeah, I think the, the reason why it's worth doing some of this deep thinking about how your, your views on money may have been shaped is because some, we all have, we're all walking around with views about money in our head, all of us. Uh, some are true, some are not. Some are useful, some are not. Um, and if some are getting in your way, then it's good to be able to rewrite them. Um, so taking stock of the messages that you've internalized, um, it sounds big and heady. Really, all you have to do is write a little, write a little like journal entry on what, what was money like growing up for you? Like if money was a character in your life story? Is it one of the main characters? Is it, uh, is it a, a hero or a villain character? Um, if you don't 
focus on how to manage your money. If you just say that it's not important, so then you don't learn it. Now there is this really important um, life skill of resource management that you've opted out of. You've just decided that because you've got hangups about money in the financial world and inequality, et cetera, because money makes you mad, because you don't like it, because it's irritating and confusing and sometimes feels really unfair or that it exacerbates unfairness. You say, well, I'm not going to learn about it. Great. Well, it's going to control your life because if you don't learn about it, you will fall into a poverty trap, almost for sure. Poverty traps are not for stupid people. Poverty traps are, are like just real <laughs> things that you fall into and you have to be careful to stay out of poverty trap. That's the purpose of money in our lives is so that we can use it to support our dreams and goals. So if you demonize it and, and distance yourself from it, you never learn the basics and you end up a slave to it because then you, you are at just a job that, you know, is soulless and, and drains you. And there, there you start on the downward spiral toward, you know. You, you, also, you also talk about the opposite side of that in the book though, um, about how, um, you know, people who actually have wealth or, or privilege, if you, if you, you know, if, if people who, 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 who have, however way you want to frame it, um, that whilst the view of, um, you know, th this view that we have that, you know, riches, um, you know, the rich are nasty or, or bad, <laughs> bad is not justified. You, you, you made the point in the book about why growing up with wealth or privilege doesn't necessarily mean that people end up forming um, a, a, a better relationship with, with money than growing up with poverty. Right. I mean, it's, it's just as easy to see, uh, to, I mean, there are just as many mistakes and people, people with money use money, you know, in relationships for power and relationships. Money is like, you know, it's a tool in, um, in social interactions. And, you know, so it's just as easy for wealthy children to grow up inheriting unhealthy financial attitudes as well, because they're watching human people make decisions with money too. And that's all it is. We're watching each other make <laughs> decisions with money. And because we talk about money so indirectly and we don't just sit down and deal with it and talk about it, parents are so, parents are so clammed up talking to their kids about money. Um, and um, we don't teach financial education in any like real life skills kind of way. Um, there's the topic is left, people are left to just sort of do, learn about money on their own. And so um, that's true for the wealthy as well. Now a word from our sponsor. Nikki Heating Jones is the Managing Director and the Chief Investment Officer at Betafolio, the high-tech, low-cost, discretionary model portfolio manager. Nikki, can you tell us a little bit about why Betafolio is different than other model portfolio solutions out there on the market? Well, I think as a startup, we're very lucky because we're we've got a blank we've had a blank sheet of paper and we're starting from scratch um so we've got no legacies to deal with um, 
the key difference with us is, uh, is that we really aim to partner with advisors with the end client's outcomes as the core goal for all of us. Um, and we want to provide everything that the advisor needs to run their investment proposition. So we give them regulatory support. We can help with platform due diligence as well as fund due diligence and the usual investment pieces. We've got our sister company, Timeline, which allows us to really support advisors with their retirement planning and we can produce CRPs. For example, I'm working with a client at the moment to bespoke a decumulation strategy for them and work a way of managing that within our discretionary um, service for them. So we can touch on every, every element connected to investment that the advisor needs. We have a really different approach to rebalancing from many of the model portfolio services out there where we're supporting our clients to move away from calendar-based rebalancing. We've done a lot of research into tolerance-based rebalancing, which we know provides superior returns, but we're actually developing the processes to enable that to happen um, and make it easier for advisors actually. Um, another key part of our full service is the client communications that we provide. So advisors will have a bank of sales aids, thought pieces, regular commentary, as well as the usual quarterly reports and performance reports that you would expect a, an MPS to provide. So I think that to sum it up, the difference is that we're, we're designing something that meets every need that an advisor may have for offering an investment proposition to retail clients. Thank you very much, Nikki. When a lower or middle income family comes into wealth, I like this, they are like immigrants arriving in new land. They are a new, they, they, there is a new culture to navigate with um, new rules to learn and even a form of a new form of language, and I think a lot, um, you know, about this myself. You know, as as an as an immigrant, and um, and and you know, I, I know that a lot of financial advisors work with clients who uh, maybe themselves, their parent weren't wealthy, and their first generation wealthy, and and this challenge about how you start to um, train the next generation um, so that they can manage the wealth that has been handed over to them so that we don't end up with this sort of this cycle of um, you know wealth doesn't last beyond three generation thing so in the book you talked about the avoiders the assimilators and and the integrators talk a little bit about that and and what the best sort of um, approach or the right attitude to, to managing this is yeah, so that's that is a great bit of work that comes from uh, Jim Grubman. So if you liked that bit, you would love his book, um, Strangers in Paradise. Um, so he, Jim Grubman was the professor who got me into this line of research um, back when I was trying to sort out my own financial psychology um, and learn how to manage money. But he has worked with uh, families in, with inter, you know, planning intergenerational wealth transfers for a long time. And he works more as a family therapist that also understands asset management. Right. Um, that's more his, his way. And the thing that he has found is that the 
families who, you know, coming into wealth and let's just define wealth as more money than you've ever had to right. handle. More, more money than the previous generation. <laughs> or more, more money that for you, wealth for you is just more money than you've ever had to handle. Right. Um, or that you've ever thought about having, right? So now you're wealthy, you have this money and it's not as if we just inher inherit or absorb uh, or learn money management, you know, out of thin air. Um, but there are, when you suddenly have a lot more resources, a lot more means, there are things that change, like in many, in many cases, social things change. And even the way that people, you know, you maybe you move to a different neighborhood right. because you want a better school system or because you, you can live in your dream house out in the country and raise horses or whatever. Now you've moved. Now you're going to have a different social group. And um, the, the social aspect of having wealth comes with a whole new rule set, you know? And so you have the people who, just like when immigrants come from one country to a new country, there tend to be three, this is what Dr. Grubman found, there tend to be three responses to that culture shock. Um, one response is to completely assimilate. You know, those right. are the people that are like, full on blue jeans, you know, I'm all America. I'm going to be more American than the Americans if they're, you know, if they're to America. or, if, you know, someone who comes to Britain and they're like all about Britain, right? There, That's assimilation. Just, I'm just going to be the new culture, leave the old one behind. The other one is, you know, uh, the other extreme is holding on to the old and not adopting any of the new because you want to protect the values that right. that allowed you to do the things to get there in the first place, right? right? You want to protect the like the the cultural values, and so um, that is, uh, you know, the other extreme is not assimilating at all. But then the healthy one is integration, and integration is where you you take the parts of the new culture that you admire and that align with your values and you bring with you the things that you want to keep and you merge those things together that's the healthy assimilated uh new um situation but just like anything i mean we need examples we need examples of people who cross cultures but the only examples that we have are in our stories and movies, and we're back right. to stereotypes. And those those examples aren't, uh, you know, they're not reflective of where we want to be. They're not reflective of, um, you know, the, this positive and um, empowering attitude um, to 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 money. The 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 other thing that struck me um, about your book is this idea about psychological distance mm -hmm. and you know how we can use this to um you know to shape our behavior and our relationship to with with money so i, I want to talk a little bit about this um, you, you talked about, um, you know, some experiments in the book. I'm probably going to, I'm not going to try to, to rehash that, uh, but the, the, where 
they, they asked people to um, essentially describe the future in some shape or form. And what I was expecting as I was reading this is that people who get really vivid about the future and they they can uh, you know they know where they're going to be in 10 years time and what what kind of houses they want to live in what retirement is going to look like um, I assumed that those people are going to be better um, long-term uh, managers of money or better long-term investor but that's not the case you know necessarily because it seems that it depends on um, the kind of person that you are naturally, if you well, actually, well, no, with psychological distance, I mean, you've pegged it correctly. Like the, the further that you think into the future, the clearer you can see that future, the, um, the more, the better you're going to be able to handle long-term investments. The most of us tend to think, uh, like when I've surveyed people about how far into the future, they tend to think and plan. It's generally like 70% of people, um, think less than 10 years ahead. And right. that makes sense. You know, I mean, but, but the thing is that to manage your money well, you have to think more than 10 years ahead. And so people who are naturally prone to thinking ahead are going to, you know, sort of by default be the people who are already thinking about long-term planning. They're more patient. Um, if you have a short-term mindset that works against you financially because of all sorts of reasons. Um, the, um, I think where, where the putting something into the future is dangerous to our finances is when, if you, if the future feels far off to you, mm. if, if you think about, you know, if I were to say in 20 years, like how far away is 20 years in your mind's eye? Is it here or is it way over there? You know, how clear is it? Is it, can you totally see that? Or is it like, um, yeah, whatever that you know, the, the clarity and detail with which we see something helps us to attach to it and make it happen. So we are more likely to reach goals that are clear in our minds. We're more likely to, um, to, uh, to prioritize the future over the present to save. So short-term thinkers have a harder time saving. And it's because the, the psychological distance, we have to cross, it's, it's, um, it's like the physics in our brain. Psychological distance is, is pretty much the, the physics of the brain because the way that we picture time and space affects how we weigh trade-offs mm -hmm. in our mind. Mm -hmm. So when we, in behavioral science, we talk about rational versus irrational behavior. But really what's irrational is kind of defined, defined as when, you, when your trade-offs, your trade-off decisions don't line up. But think about, um, if I were to say to you, um, think about to the difference in time from today and one month from now. Mm. How big does that feel in your mind's eye, right? Now think about 10 years from now and 10 years plus one month from now. Like that is smaller in your mind's eye. And because we put it off there, the, the trade-offs that we're the, we are not, we don't make our financial trade-offs 
on paper. We make it, we make them in our minds. We set up scenarios. If I do this with my money, this happens. If I do that with my money, this happens. And then we do a little cost benefit analysis, right? Which one do I want more? Which one? And then we do the thing that feels best. That's what our brains do in an instant cost benefit analysis. So if there are things about the way that we think that skew that mental cost benefit analysis, um, then we can understand why we start to make these wrongheaded decisions. So why do so many of us prefer a lump sum of money right now versus uh, twice as much in the future? Well, because the future is far off and abstract and vague and who knows if we'll get there. But the, the upfront, the right now is right here. I can see it, I can feel it and I'm viscerally attached to it. And so we overweight the present because it feels more concrete, it feels more real, more safe, all those things. But we end up underweighting the things that are over here that are, that are more abstract. And if it would be fine if we could sort of take this put it up here and say, okay, now let me make this trade off here. What's, what's the real trade off, but we don't do that. We skip that step. And because we skip that step, the thing that's far off in the future stays vague, stays like not awesome enough to prioritize until it's so close and looming. And this is why when you talk to a 25 year old, they cannot get their head around retirement, right. you know, but, but then they show up at 55 with $100,000 and they want to retire in 10 years. Mm. And you're like, I don't know if we can do that. You know, like you didn't care enough when you needed to care. The reason is psychological distance, because when things are set off far in our mind's eye, we discount them. And the more impatient you are, the steeper your discount rate. So I'm right. a short term thinker, an impatient person. That means that waiting for anything is, is really hard for me. I pay a high cost of waiting. Um, somebody who's patient, they just literally don't pay that cost. They, it doesn't hurt them to wait. So this is why the people who are great investors also happen to be long-term patient, long-term thinkers and patient people. So if you want to become a good long-term investment, but you're not a long-term thinker and you're not a patient person, it doesn't mean you can't invest. It means you need to know yourself well enough to like train your mind to think longer term work on your patients. Otherwise you won't stay in a long-term investment because you're too, you, you're too short-term mindset. And, and I think there is something incredibly powerful about what you just said. So I guess the question is as, as a financial advisor um, or just, just as an investor, is there a way for me to know what my natural tender is? They test. Good, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I love that question. I, there's probably a test um, somewhere an academic kind of test. But what I would say, if you wanted to, um, so there's one thing that I remember, uh, one paper that was done where with, uh, to look at the the way, the uh, the time frame in people's heads. Right. And the, the way that they had set up this experiment was that half the people were, um, were like drug addicted and had very, very short time horizons. Um, and the other half were not, they were long, um, they, they did not have addiction because this paper was linking short-termism with addiction and drug use. Right. Um, so short-term thinking is a danger, not just for your finances, for all aspects of life. Like we've got to think longer term. But, um, but the way they set this up is they had their, their uh, addicts group and non-addicts group and the, um, 
they had them write stories about, you know, make up a story about Joe, just write a story about Joe, what happened in Joe's day. And then they had people um, read the stories and code them for how, how much time the stories took up, you know, right. so how far were they thinking in their imagination? And the people that were actively addicted drug users, um, their stories were like one day long. Right. And the right. other stories were like three weeks. Right. Right. And so right. you could just see into the imagination of a short term thinker versus a longer term thinker, you know. Um, so I thought that was one interesting way. So how would you apply that in financial planning? I mean, if you just ask a client um, to tell you about their their plans for their for their future and their money, see how far out they go. I mean, right. at, at what point at what point does it just dissolve into? And then I don't know. I'm sitting around, you know, because that's that's when they've stopped thinking about it. And so maybe it's you know, you can kind of get a sense of how detailed, how clear, how long are they thinking? How detailed are they thinking? How clear is their thinking? And just help them work on that little by little. You know, if they can only see a few months ahead, you don't need to push them 40 years, get them to see six months ahead, maybe. Um, if they're, if if they really need to, you know, have also having, if they see the long-term plan, but then start to see the steps that you take to get toward the long-term plan. Um, I think that, yeah, if there's anything I've seen in my research that I'm convinced is a real signal, it is that um, the way that we think about time, uh, it really, really affects um, the timeline of money management. Uh, and I wonder if we can use that to, to A, influence not just how much risk people take in their in their portfolio should it um, is the first question or whether we use that as a way to um, decide or determine how much handholding someone might need especially in in choppy markets what's your thoughts on that yeah well so understanding a person's mental time horizon is what I call it. Um, you know, the longer the mental time horizon, the, the more they should probably be able to ride storms because right. they're, they're thinking long-term. So, you know, short-term thinkers are going to need more handholding. I think it's good to just know that up front, but so in what ways? So short-term thinkers, um, are going to tend to be more, um, risk seeking because you need the immediate reward. I mean, if right. you have to put your money away, you're not going to use it for 10 years. That's no fun. You don't get to have any fun for 10 years, you know? Um, so, so finding ways for, to create milestones and like even things like, um, you know, I don't want to say celebrating, but like, tracking and, and, you know, of um, making contributions, you know, when short-term thinkers have, have, you know, like they need to like, yay, you, you, you contributed. <laughs> you right. you, short-term thinking and saving don't tend to go together. So, so, so as an advisor, you know, if you find someone who's got a short-term mindset, you're going to need, you're going to want to train that mindset over time to think 
further ahead, but it's not like you can just, you know, you also need just like, a, we're like puppies. Those of us yeah. with short-term mindsets, we need treats, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like you just give it, give those, those like close milestones because then the habit of saving gets rewarded. It gets, um, and it changes your mindset about saving is no longer, oh, it's drudgery. It's like, no, it feels good to save. I like seeing my account go up. I like feel, I like that feeling of knowing that I'm going to be prepared, you know, but you have to like draw attention to those positive things that happen in the immediate because the long-term payoff isn't for a long time. And that's way, way, way out in your mind's eye. And it's over there. Like you just don't feel that you got to bring some of those bring some of the reward up close um, in order to make saving worthwhile for a short-term thinker. But when it comes to money management and retirement planning, it seems that we don't naturally care early enough to right. plan. Right. And so one of the, you know, to avoid having the next generation come to you at 55 with no assets and say, I want to retire, um, you know, we need to be, I think we have got to be better talking about money, talking about the messy parts of money mm. and meaning the, the parts that make us uncomfortable about our financial systems, because those are important conversations that we have to have as, as a society and as cultures. Um, they're important, but those are big, huge issues that we created as a society and that we have to fix as a society. And those take a long time to talk about through and fix and, you know, and, but then in the meantime, in your own life, you've got to be able to talk to yourself with clear eyes about money. Where are your hangups? Where are the, where are the things, what are the things that, um, you know, where are the areas in your financial life that maybe, when was the last time you kicked yourself for spending or, you know, how are you, or what do you feel like you could be doing better? How could you be managing your resources in a way that's like supporting your dreams even more? Incredible stuff. Powerful stuff. Dr. Newcomb, um, thank you very much for your time, for your wisdom. Um, I am very, very grateful for that. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.